0: Welcome to a special best of episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm not joined by Corrie Perkin this week. Instead, we're bringing you some of the best bits of the podcast. Has it really been more than a year? Especially for those of you who may be newer listeners to the show. We were planning to do our podcast this week on Tuesday afternoon, but uh, full disclosure here, I had to attend the funeral for my dear, well, my dear past associate I guess and friend Tony Peake who died on the Monday after the grand final and there was a wonderful and very moving tribute to Tony at the MCG. If you want to listen to Corey and Jeff Slattery paying tribute to Tony you can do that in episode 57. Tony Peake was a remarkable man. He helped design the first racial vilification policy in Australian sport and the tribute by Michael O'Loughlin, Adam Goods, and Shay Cockatoo Collins was one of the more moving things I've ever seen. Anyway, this week our producer Miss Jane has chosen a few memorable moments for you, some of our favourite recommendations and most requested recipes and do I have some doozies for next week We'll be back next week with a new episode and in the meantime, if you haven't listened to our new spin-off podcast The Book Pod, I urge you to subscribe The First Book Pod was in fact Corrie speaking with the best-selling Australian author Leanne Moriarty. And for mine, although I'm biased, it was one of the best interviews I heard Leanne give, talking about her new book Nine Perfect Strangers. Coming up this Friday is episode two, an intriguing conversation between Corrie and the journalist Laura Tingle. She was even happy to talk about her boyfriend Sam Neal. So subscribe to the book pod wherever you listen. Thank you to the Interchange Bench for supporting the show. If your business needs new players, pick them from the Interchange Bench. And one last thing, we're planning a live podcast on November 28 from 12 until 2. So pop that in your diary. It will be in a Victorian Melbourne location to be disclosed. Listen in next week for more details. And remember, don't shoot the messenger.
1: Australian designer and good friend of the podcast Jane Lamerton joined Corrie and Caro to talk spring racing this time last year. The fashion, the faux pas and even allegations of corruption when it comes to judging fashions on the field.
2: On to spring racing carnival girls, the fun time of the year and Melbourne's a buzz with hats and dare I say chicken sandwich recipes and what are we going to wear. Janie, Honestly, look, I was thinking the other day of how many cups um, and must you and I and Carol have been to collectively. My first uh, time at Flemington, I think I was about 19. I was probably the third year of my cadetship at the age. And do you remember they used to have news diary? Kevin Child and Jan yep. McGuinness used to write that page two fabulous column. Well, they I was sent out as like the third wheel. And I think Kevin was probably in a marquee somewhere, you know, propped up against the bar having a champagne as was his wont. And Jan, I don't know where she was, and I, my job was to go and cover the car parks. I had never been to the car park. I had no idea what cover the car parks mean. Boy, did I learn quickly. And I had three great wins that day. One was I found my mother and a couple of her old folks on the back of someone's, you know, BMW. And, and, you know, and they all all kind of opened up about, you know, tragedies, travesties, fashions they'd seen and pointed me in the right direction. Then I ran into Lily and Frank in the members stand who just introduced me to sort of 10 of Melbourne's best looking women. So that was helpful. And then the third thing I did was I, I went into the members' women's restroom And I spoke to the lady there who was um, taking all the coats and so on and I said, oh, could you count for me how many fur coats there are? And she came up with 47 fur coats or something and then proceeded to tell me about all the goings-on, women being sick in the bathrooms and it was just great. So I had so much copy. So I have fond memories of my first cup. What about you, Jane?
3: Oh, look, I think i just, started going to Derby Day I think was the first race meeting I went to and that was um, early 80s and I've got photographs of it and there we are in the nursery car park completely on our own there's this one red Commodore with a few deck chairs around it and none of us had hats on and I thought this was like a country race meeting. It was fabulous. And I think some of the best things were after that we used to always, uh, my husband and I always used to host a car park and we'd have people come over from Perth and that was our, uh, Sydney and wherever, that was our way of repaying hospitality. We became members and... um we had about two, you know, in the nursery, and I just loved it because the roads weren't made, and if you got bogged, you got bogged, and everyone had to bring a plate, so everyone felt involved, and it was just great fun. And not everybody, you know, were members. And in those days, I don't know if you remember, at the bottom of the of the grandstand there, there used to be, a, you know, the garden there, and there was a little gate, and there was this one dear old chap who had to monitor the gate and who came through. And it was like a garden gate. So when he had his back turned, we everyone had sneaked sneak through. <laughs> so I mean, to actually think about that, and the current sort of you know high security, and you know are you wearing the oh, right thing? And everybody and, oh, oh, and has a lanyard. Everybody has a lanyard around, around neck. Corporate
0: areas. Oh. That, I mean, some of them are beautiful, but some of them are anyway. What best outfit you can remember you oh, ever wore? Oh no!
3: Look, do you know what? I think probably. I'll tell you the worst outfit. Um, <laughs> and that was a Caulfield Cup many years ago and I had a lovely dress and then the weather changed you know 2 days before and I said to the pattern room girls I was always leaving it to the last minute. Can you whip me up a little trench coat to go with this? And they did a beautiful navy satin And I thought, what am I going to wear on my head? And I thought, I know. I'll get a beret. So I said to the girls, let's, let's make a navy beret. And I dashed down to the haberdashery and bought all these peacock feathers. And I shoved them on the front, thought I looked fabulous, went to the races and, you know, had the photo in the paper. And on the following Monday, I went to the butchers in queue. And I've walked in and there's this photo up, you know, in the butcher shop. <laughs> oh, and I said to... Local wait, celebrity, yeah, Jane Laser. And I said to... Um, Jeff, Bert, and Alf. Oh, you've got my photograph up, and they looked at me and they said, "What were you thinking?"
2: Oh, I thought I thought, oh, oh, but hardly really good. fashionistas. No, person, I was going to say Bert
3: and Alf. You know, really told me that I didn't look so so good, so I was a bit more careful after that. Have Cara, you ever, what have
2: you ever got a favourite outfit you
3: wore? Our oh,
0: well, oh, best and worst. Worst was the day that um, I was working at the age on the Saturday morning before Emirates Stakes Day. And I was going in to, we used to get taken as kids by my family every year to the nursery as teenagers. And I just loved it and kept going. Anyway, Brendan told me when I left home it was going to be 31 degrees as a joke. It was, in fact, going to be 19 degrees. This is when we were first married. So I wore this beautiful cotton, I oh know, I think it was voile. Anyway, it was spotted, it was very pretty with a really lovely hat. Well, it was 19 degrees and I was, you know, sleeveless. So I had to borrow. I was so furious with him. And he was also working at the age that morning. I made him give me his big navy blue woolen coat, which I wore over it and looked like an absolute frump. So that was my worst. But my best, and I must say, I did, I wish I'd got, I don't, I I was trying to find a photo to bring it in, but it was a black and white Anna Thomas dress um, to the Derby, black and white, you know, and um, with a white Mimco hat with a beautiful black sort of grosgrain ribbon And these really lovely... They were white shoes with black bows on by a designer. I can't remember. But anyway... I do think I just looked an absolute picture that day, and
3: people did tell me that. If I do say so myself, I, I wish I'd seen you, Janie. Oh, oh, look! I think you would have looked fabulous. But I think the best outfits that you wear to the races are those that are where well, you get the proportion right, you know, yep. and you feel comfortable. I yes. think the thing that you know comes out really badly with an outfit is you see these poor girls walking along and they can't walk or they've got their shoes off. Well, and, it's
2: like they think, oh, 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 races equals disco night on Saturday night. A
3: spaghetti strap well, yeah, really does not belong. We- at the races. Especially when it's
2: 17 degrees and it's a howling right. wind well, right. there in the is, Western District. Yes,
0: there's a lot of cocktail when it should be day wear. Now, Jane, have you
3: judged fashions on the field? I I have I haven't done it for a few years but I was um, I used to judge uh, a lot in the early days when it was open and uh, it was actually a bit hard to get people to enter and uh, so Maya who were hosting it um, had an open category and uh, What this does open mean? Open means anyone can come you along You and I could go in it Anyone <laughs> Anyone Anyone could come No matter along.
2: what the age whoever yeah. you are
3: no, Anyone could come along you just had to walk up and you, you know and we were the judges sitting up there in this particular cup day there were two or three Sydney designers who had let me just put it this way had been refreshing themselves since the early hours of the morning <laughs> and were well and truly flying by the time we got to judge and <clears throat> there was a um, very voluptuous young chap who decided to come as Miss Piggy. And the, the poor woman who was running it was looking at me because the Sydney designers were saying, oh, we love we love Miss Piggy. We want Miss Piggy to win. <laughs> and she said, Jane, you're the only sensible one on the panel. I thought, well, I actually don't really want to be classified as sensible. She said, just pick someone. I said, oh, look, I think, you know, we all love the lady in the navy suit. And they're saying, This is rigged, it's rigged. It's rigged. <laughs> so they <laughs> were heckling. They were <laughs> heckling and it was it was actually it was it was actually terribly stressful at the time, but on reflection very funny. Anyway, after that, Maya really tightened it up and for a while there, um, we used to send spotters out um, into the car parks to try and find, you know, really um well dressed young women, and and I think that sort of changed things, and then the prize money went up, and and women now really embrace it beautifully. I love the fact that but people now, go to so much trouble. I
2: think but it's now great. They, now they hire models to put on their clothes. Yeah, look, I'm not a fan. I'm
3: not. I'm not a fan of that. It takes out that open. It does. Sense. It does. But I think you know, gee, Willikers. Uh, The carnival could nearly come to be suffering from a bit of overmanagement. I liked it when it was, you know, a little bit freer, a little bit lighter. But now it's just so managed. You know, I was reading the other day that... The birdcage and you can only allow four thousand people in there, um, which is fine because I think we stopped going to the races and hosting a car park because it just got—it was just too hard. Yeah,
2: too hard. And, too, and hard. too many, too many girls in the port-a-loos, you know, throwing Yet, up. Yeah, no, all of it got a oh, bit well, ugly. I mean, Corrie, that—I mean, dare I say—that's been going, <laughs> going on for decades. J- J- Janie, I wanted to um, get on to my favourite topic of um, fascinators, which, oh. as you know, I cannot abide. Where do you stand on hats or fascinators?
3: Well, I actually—I'm a bit of a hat girl, but I. I think, I'll go back to my previous point, I think it really comes down to proportion and how you want the outfit to look and how comfortable you feel. I think there is uh, room for a fascinator. For instance, if you take a really good look this season, which is the smoking jacket, so go back to Yves Saint Laurent on that beautiful Le smoking jacket, the suits making a really big return, um, a bit hard to put a hat with that. But if you did something gorgeous and close to the head, um, with a little bit of netting or something over your face, you could look absolutely fantastic. So that's where it works. However, maybe we
2: could borrow your beret with the peacocks. I'll and be quiet. And I, no, I think Q butcher I think Alf's
0: still
3: got it. I, think.
0: <laughs> I don't. I don't think Alf the butcher would be taken as the best judge.
3: No, it. no, no. But um, I think that I think when you actually come across with just a you know a little bit of froth stuck onto the side of the head, I actually I'm with you. I don't like it. I did note that the royal enclosure at Ascot will still not allow a fascinator. Mm, good, it, good on them. Apparently well, it comes down to size. Well, they to have size. to talk to Princess well, Eugenie well, and Beatrice yeah, well, about How did
2: Beatrice it? and Eugenie
0: yes, get in they're, they're, they're the big I, fascinator exactly. queen. But I
3: think it comes I out, rest
2: my case no, on fascinators
3: but, with that one. Okay, as I said, it comes down to size. Apparently it's something to do with 10 centimetres. Having said that, I do love a hat, and I think the hat will make a big return.
1: Caro Corrie and much-loved Australian designer Jane Lamerton there. And, yes, Caro's famous chicken sandwiches get a good run during spring racing season. Here she is with the recipe.
0: I know you've been waiting for 11 weeks.
2: I hope this is an asparagus mayonnaise I'm recipe I'm going or to something.
0: reveal my chicken sandwich recipe. Oh, I know people are so sick of me boasting about my chicken sandwich recipe. So here it is. You have to buy Wonder White bread. White, get rid of and, and no crusts. Okay, wonder right bread. I don't eat white bread. White, you do when you have chicken sandwiches. Don't be ridiculous. White sandwich loaf from the supermarket. Don't think you can just use chicken breast. You have to boil the whole chicken. Put a whole chicken into boil. You Keep the stock for when you have risotto or making soup. And at the last minute, after you've boiled the chicken for about an hour... Um, turn is, it off. Is,
2: is there anything so unappetizing as a boiled chicken when it comes out of the water?
0: Chicken is so nice. It's so it, it's so much nicer when it's a whole chicken because you get all the different bits. Once you turn off the chicken boiling, throw in two chicken breasts and do, sit, they can sit there in the cold boiling water and they slowly poach. An hour later, take the whole lot out, drain the stock, and you've thrown in a few peppercorns and a bit of carrot, parsley, celery, whatever you've got. You peel all the meat off the chicken, get rid of the skin, chop up the chicken breast plus the two breasts on the chicken plus the brown meat, everything, chop it all up, put it in a great big bowl. Our our vegan potties are out there throwing up at this point. <laughs> well, you know, they are missing out is all I can say. Then you chop up really finely spring onions, celery, parsley and I reckon you've got to have uh, tarragon but you can use You don't chives. put any little
2: pine nuts in yours? Well, I'm coming to that. Okay, sorry.
0: So, all the herbs, uh, uh, the three best herbs are parsley, chives, and tarragon. Bit of tarragon's great. T- uh, one or two celery sticks, really finely chopped, and spring onions, really finely chopped. Don't just use mayonnaise, but the mayonnaise you must use is that whole egg mayonnaise or best foods mayonnaise, not one that's too salty. But however much mayonnaise you put in, you put in an equal amount of yogurt, just plain Greek yogurt. Then just stir it around until you think it's, you know, it's moist enough. Looks like cat sick, yeah. No, Corey, you know you love my chicken sandwiches. Then if you if you can afford pine nuts, roast them up and don't burn them. I mean, how many times have you burned those flipping pine nuts? Put in the pine nuts or you can use roasted almonds, slivered almonds or chopped almonds, whatever sort of almonds you want. Lots of nuts I like. Mix it all together and then lay it. It's really good to have an electric carving knife because then the bread doesn't go all, you know, stripped and doughy. Make your sandwiches with your electric carving knife. Take all the crusts off. Chuck them in the bin. Don't put them in the garden. Feed them to the birds. Birds aren't interested. And then...
2: Well, the chooks are if you have chooks. And then
0: depending on whether you're entertaining or taking them to the races, do them in little diamonds or just in half. So you've got two rectangular pieces. And lots of lovely garnish, bits of parsley or whatever sort of herb you've got to make it look nice. You will never have a better chicken sandwich. Well, I'm
2: not sure that better this justifies sandwich. me going out and buying an electric carving knife.
0: Well, how many times do you need an electric carving knife when you're using when you're cooking? I fillet, it when you're doing a roast. To me, they're
2: a bit like electric toothbrushes. Like, really, what's the point if you have a decent knife, cut, you know,
1: knife to cut with? You'll do a perfect
2: edge. I used to say that, but I've never looked
1: back. And you'll find the recipe for Caro's famous chicken sandwiches in the show notes from today's Best of Episode. In episode 42, broadcaster and commentator Jared Waitley joined Corrie as a special guest. Here's Corrie's book recommendation and Jared's screen suggestion. But I want to tell you about this one called Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi.
2: Camilla is a Pakistani born, London based author. And she was long listed for the Man Booker Prize last year and her book Home Fire just recently last week won the Women's Prize which some will remember it used to be called the Orange Prize for fiction and then it was recently called the Bailey's Prize. So they've ditched the sponsor's name and they're just calling it the Women's Prize. It is the most prestigious award for female writers in the world. And I felt a bit shameful that I hadn't read this book. I cannot put it down. I started it two nights ago. In fact, you know, let's wind up the podcast. I want to go home. I've got about another 20 pages. But it's very, uh, it's very topical and it's a family drama set in modern-day London. Part of the action is set in the Middle East. And it involves three London-based Pakistani-born siblings, the older sister Isma and um, her younger twin uh, brother and sister Pavier's and Anika. Their parents have died. Their father was a Muslim freedom fighter who died mysteriously while while being taken to Guantanamo Jail. And their mother has died uh, when the twins were 11. So Isma has really raised these kids alone in London. Everything starts to unravel when Pavez, through the local soccer team, he's 19 at this stage, is lured to Syria through the Muslim Brotherhood Network and disappears. And both sisters are frantically trying to find him. Enter Amon, the attractive son of the up-and-coming politician, Home Secretary, who himself is Muslim, and he is a very charismatic older politician, and we wonder whether he, in fact, can help Anika bring her brother home. Look, Jared, this book has had rave reviews. You and Mrs. Whateley can um, have your own little book club. I'm sure yes. you'll both really enjoy it. It's an easy read, but it's a, in terms of the it's um, lightning fast fac- action. But the characters, these three kids um, as adults, it's just such an extraordinary story of bond, family, secrets, uh, and just misplaced trust uh, and respect. Um, I mean, obviously, Parviers realises that someplace he is in the wrong place with the wrong gang of people. Uh, And what matters really is family love. Great book. Home Fire, great one for book clubs, uh, do yourself a favour. Now, Is there on, a
4: political overlay to it as well as the family unit? There,
2: there is, but not preachy. Mm-hmm. It's very much – I think this is happening a lot, well, we know it is, with um, families in Britain where uh, because of their connections through second or third generation with Pakistan or so on or or Muslim, um, other Muslim countries, the kids are being taken back to the homeland. Or this is where your grandparents grew up or whatever and either in London – all back over there. Suddenly, they uh, fall into the hands of of people who f- who feel, for whatever political reason, they can manipulate these kids and bring them over to the other side. Uh, this is a really great story, very contemporary story. Um, you're going to tell us about Screen. What have you been watching?
4: So we are always on television. A- when do you get <laughs> yes. time to? Watch we <laughs> needed a little bit of an antidote to. So the great series of the day are heavy going. So Handmaid's Tale, The Americans, The Crown of probably what we've been working through recently. So Claire in particular found that at the end of our hour, you just needed a little sweetener at the end. So we Because <laughs> so searched-
2: you can't go to bed with yeah. all that trauma in your yeah. head. <laughs>
4: so we searched for the 22-minuter. And for a little while, we watched The Good Place, uh, but the kids like The Good Place so much that... Claire and the kids would watch it, and I'd sort of see an episode every now and then, but couldn't get the thread of it. But So we've kept for ourselves Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So this is a classic sitcom. It's set in a police precinct in Brooklyn, and... It is distinguishable for two reasons it has a large key cast so it operates with seven major characters and a couple offset against that so that's I think that's a lot as the formula usually is four and then you get friends which might have strayed to six so this goes with seven and it is it laugh out loud funny I reckon at least five times in twenty two minutes consistently so that's a blessing the central characters. Uh, hit all the right caricatures because a comedy must, mustn't it? You've got to know exactly who you're watching and what their interactions are going to be. So Peralta's the central character. He's a cocky young detective who is too cool to wear a tie and won't conform to convention. So he's a rebel, but he's the best detective in the place. His counterpoint is Santiago who's the young female detective who's earnest and competitive and seeks to be the teacher's pet. She wants the approval of the captain, but she likes the sparring with Peralta. And as it goes along, there's a clear Love. spark between them, Love. which is unresolved uh, early in season two, which is where uh, we're up to. Captain Holt is a gay police captain, the only one in the NYPD, who is completely deadpan. And most of the jokes around him is uh, to whether he's being funny or serious and no one can read him. He is excellent and he the the whole show sort of he's the he's the center point everything revolves around him Boyle is the hopeless sidekick Uh, Diaz has the mean exterior and Boyle has a thing for her she's got it was revealed sort of the heart of gold as it comes along she's it's all front Hitchcock and Scully are the two incompetent detectives for the cheap laugh Jean is the ditzy secretary who's spiritual and hilarious and Sarge is the bodybuilding department head who tries to keep them all together. So they have sort of set-piece episodes sometimes. There's one at Thanksgiving, one at Halloween, one at the captain's birthday. And the captain's birthday is particularly good because the precinct drops in into this world where the captain is exactly as he is, except all of his circle of friends and partner think he's hilarious. <laughs> so he's still delivering in the same manner, and they're all rolling around funny, and everyone in the, in the, from the precinct, we still can't see it. <laughs> its hit rate for laughs is is perfect.
2: It's pretty good.
0: Yeah,
4: and it's a lovely antidote after the heavy going of the quality dramas that are being made at the moment.
2: Well, you know there is a Netflix syndrome. So Netflix, have, you would have heard of this, they, they have uh, – tracked that when people come off a, a six or eight or ten part series, they go into decline. They have a mournful moment. Yes. and they Or they're exhausted,
4: or both. There is exhaustion to some of these series, isn't So they, they
2: go off Netflix for a period. I think if, of average, it's something like nine days or 14 days or something, but they go off. So they've logged people. So they keep you, they, they don't hammer you. You'll yep. notice that you're never hammered, but then after a two-week period or something, little... start appearing in your inbox you might like this or you might like that but they know to just not hassle you it's all been worked out and measured it's hilarious because i find that too you come off something that is exhausting and you just can't go near the television for another you know
4: i'm trying to negotiate with claire the second season of the handmaid's tale which she acknowledges is great television but it's just so heavy going so at the time for the time being she won't watch it during winter
1: Jared Waitley there from episode forty-two with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, his screen recommendation, and Corrie with her review of Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. Now, if you've listened to our new spin-off podcast, The Book Pod, you'll know that Home Fire is the book we're reading for our first book club episode. So get reading and be part of the book club.
0: Da 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 da! My top ten sporting films of all time. Rush is number ten. Now this is a great film about the racing car driver James Hunt, mm-hmm. starring Chris Hemsworth. It was completely overlooked in terms of awards and Oscars. And I did bail up. Um, Chris, are so you
2: bailed up? At the, I bailed him up yeah. at the footy one day He said how much he loved him. Yeah. And why oh, didn't well it done. get
0: nominated? Well he done. said it's all about marketing. I said, <laughs> Chris, I understand. Anyway, number that was number ten. Number nine, Caddyshack, just hysterical, mm. brilliant film. Number eight is The Club which was the Bruce Bereson film based on the David Williamson play. Jack Thompson is gives one of the three all-time best performances as a coach in that film. The other one is – one of the others is Gene Hackman in that film, The Hoosiers, but that's not in my top ten. Number seven – I say it's a sport film, Corrie, Gladiator. I thought that was a brilliant film. And that to me No, is, that's it's not a sport It's all about film. the origins of sport
2: in the no. Coliseum and fans and getting the crowd involved. It's about involved.
0: revenge. It's about sport. Getting
2: back and stabbing
0: the, impo- the emperor six, in the guts. Number six, Bend It Like Beckham. Love that film.
2: I do love
0: it. Number five, Any Given Sunday and the Al Pacino speech. He's the other great coaching performance. That is a brilliant film. Um, another, Except sp- I didn't like Cameron Diaz in that. Oh, she was okay. Oh, she was the owner, wasn't yeah, she? Pathetic. Yeah, um, Number four, casting. National Velvet. Number two and three are both baseball films, and I reckon they're two of the greatest films I've Don't ever seen. Don't say Jerry seen. Maguire. Do One, not say Jerry Heavens Maguire. no, Corrie. Number three is Eight Men Out, which is the story of the Chicago White Sox, who, of course, accepted bribes. And... John Cusack plays Hewless Joe Jackson and is one of the saddest, brilliant renditions of what sport was really like back in those days. Brilliant film. Number two, Bill Durham. I urge you to see that. Mm. Susan Sarandon playing the poetry-loving groupie whose opening soliloquy about sport and religion is fabulous. And number one, can't beat it, Chariots of Fire. I reckon we saw oh, that together. God, we did. That's <laughs> that you. Is you don't have film. Raging
2: Bull on your list. No,
0: I, I'm apologies to both Raging Bull and Rockies one and two, which I thought oh were no, great you can't films. put Rockies
2: one and two up with Raging Bull. And I did Gosh, love a Yank ridiculous. at Oxford with
0: Robert Taylor, which is about rowing, <laughs> <laughs> which is in the set in the thirties, and White Men Can't Jump, and Downhill Racer in the Natural, both with Robert what, Redford. What about
2: the one? What's the Jamaica bobsled team
1: one? I love cool running. running. Yes, I love That was I in, my, that. That was in my second ten. In episode 19, Caro and Corrie were joined by Caro's mum, Julia Wilson, as the nation marked 50 years since the disappearance of Prime Minister Harold Holt.
2: Caro, I can't believe this. It's 50 years since Harold Holt disappeared. And, oh, you know, like the conspiracy theories. I keep thinking now that maybe Sam Dastyari will go for a swim over summer and he'll also be picked up by a Chinese submarine. But... Um, it just made me think uh, the other day when I heard them talking about this date coming up, about the legacy of Harold Holt. And also that amazing thing, if you were old enough, where were you on the day? Now, you and I were just tiny children, but I can remember exactly the day that um, Harold Holt disappeared. We were having an early, a pre-Christmas, because we were going to be away on Christmas Day at, mm. um, at Portsea or Cows or something. And we'd had an early Christmas day with my father's family. And in the middle of the afternoon, he received this phone call from the age office because he was the editor, but it was his day off, saying, quick, quick, you've got to get in here. Harold Holter's disappeared in the surf at Portsea. And I can remember so clearly my father saying, he's gone. He, he's gone. They won't find him and racing off, and we didn't see him for another two days because it was the biggest story. Where were you, Joel? Can you remember what was I remember happening? where we were, It was now. December the 17th, wasn't it, just before Christmas?
0: We were at Ocean Grove.
5: We were. At we a were Christmas party. A lovely family party, and as luck would have it, I was standing in a group talking to uh, a bloke called Bill Patterson who was very uh, conversant with aeroplanes apart from motor cars and there were a lot of planes suddenly appearing in the sky and he said those planes shouldn't be there and I thought what a pretentious remark they're just planes (laughs) can't they sort of fly over but they were army planes that had come up and he had identified
0: them and they they weren't in the right place, and we were getting the ferry back to the other side. And I remember; yes. I mean, I just couldn't. I was I was where, seven, so you would have been
2: six. Yeah. Where did you hear the news?
0: Well, Mum told it. Mum, the the adults said this Christmas picnic.
2: Somebody we were heard it on, it on the Ocean wireless Road. or something. Oh, no, uh,
5: Bill Patterson identified the planes and went in to turn on the wireless, and it it had come across. It was coming across by then that he was missing, but anyone who'd grown up on that piece of seaside beach knew you should never have gone swimming there and what people didn't face up there were all pictures of him as being a great spear fisherman he could hardly swim the people that took him out spear fishing used to agonize over it because one had to watch him all them uh, every time he went underneath the water
2: do you think he might have taken his own life oh
5: goodness no he loved life
2: he loved women.
5: Oh, yes. He used to come and play on a, my mother's tennis court all the time. He could only serve underarm. <laughs> so it, it didn't give you any confidence in his Australian fashion. call. <laughs> well, well, we can
3: well, take it, it was,
0: with this. It was fascinating because you sort of vaguely knew, well, you knew the family well, Mum, and it mm. was just such a, um, I mean, we Mum was a very much a, someone who took us to a lot of events and she took us the previous year to South Yarra, around the Botanical Gardens to Main Road when Lyndon Johnson was in town. And he was waving at all the crowds and we were we were in the group where the protesters threw paint, uh, Vietnam protesters. So my brother actually got blue paint all over
2: his windshield, mm. you remember? He was about yes. four or five. I do. And then um, I think this is the start of your career, wanting to be at the minute it happened, well, at it, the front forefront of news stories. I mean, I, I just remember what all going. It would have been a shock for kids. Oh, it was, and we saw these
0: other people who were covered in paint, and I was really shocked that someone would do that. And then we went to the opening of the Harold Holt pool. I remember that too because mm. we lived in the area. And I, I and it never occurred to me, because people now, you know, joke about the fact, you know, your Prime Minister drowned and you opened a swimming pool in his name. <laughs> but it just seemed to me like the absolute perfect um, mo- mon- <laughs> monument to him, really. There's yes. been a lot of... And his, his his son, his only surviving son, who, of course, was only found out to be his son after he married Zara, because Zara was married to someone else when... When the the twins, and he
2: adopted them, didn't he? Didn't he well, yeah, when the, the twins were
0: conceived, mm. but then later on, there's a, an article about it in the Age's Good Weekend um, oh, a few a few days ago. Mum's looking at me horrified that I'm <laughs> revealing. Oh, it went through everything, you know, mm. Marjorie Gillespie on the beach and and all of that sort of stuff. But which are all the things he's remembered for, but. Sam Holt, who is going to speak about him at the Sorrento Historical Society before Christmas, talks about the fact that because of all the way with LBJ, he was misjudged and he was the one who introduced the census which asked whether Aboriginals should be included and amazing to think of now. He... um, I think he's he, so
2: much He, he started to
0: undermine he started to undermine, according to historians the white Australia policy mm-hmm. in subtle ways. He was voted into Parliament in 1935 mm-hmm. and he was and he was 59 when he died. I mean he seemed so
2: old. But he had, uh, he had, I think he had enormous he had enormous potential because Australia had been you know in the vice-like grip of Robert Menzies for so long and in fact there were people in their 20s and 30s at that time, who'd never really or couldn't remember having any other other Prime Minister other than this deeply conservative tied-to-Britain um, s- statesman in charge. And as you say, Harold Holt was really responsible um, in part for dismantling the white Australia policy. For the arts, uh, Rupert Meyer, um, who's the outgoing chair of the Australia Council last month, wrote a terrific piece in The Australian about Harold Holt's uh, Vision in sort of putting aside government funding to start up what then became um, mm. the, you know, the Australia Council. He was also instrumental in um, putting aside funding for the National Gallery in Canberra. And there was just a real sense, he was the first Prime Minister to employ a speechwriter. There was just a real sense that there was something new happening here. And um, all of a sudden he disappears. My mum, I can I can remember my mum. Uh, she would um, agree with you, Joel. She met um, Dame Zara, as she later became, and um, and the Prime Minister. It's I don't know, maybe about a few months before they before he disappeared, and she could always recall how charismatic and handsome he was, and what great company. Yes, yes, I suppose so. Um, <laughs>
5: We didn't think so, especially as children. He wasn't one of our heroes, of my parents' Because he underarm served. Uh, yes, we did think underarm <laughs> serving was definitely off. But he always used to be in the kitchen with mum, <laughs> um, saying Zara wouldn't get out of bed. He, was, <laughs> he used to be constantly annoyed with her and comparing her to mum, who walked into Sorrento every morning not driving and had made raspberry jam and got
0: lamb on the go by 10 o'clock and, every morning. Harold was saying, why can't Zara be more like <laughs> yes. that? More like, more like Granny. But Mum, what about that? the rest of that summer? I mean was it something you talked about for the, because that's a bit I don't remember. I remember the day and Jack McEwen being voted in as his replacement, but that's, I can't remember much about, the, I mean I kept thinking even in January, I remember thinking he might turn up. Oh well it made the
5: summer, I regret to say for all you gang of children you were pestering us to go into the water immediately after lunch to find Harold. <laughs> and um, Anna from the op shop, her brother, was convinced he was a great a great seaman. And he'd go out every afternoon and spend hours in the rock balls. And,
2: Forever to uh, be known as the, uh, as the boy who found <laughs> Harold sitting on a rock. Well, the children were convinced he'd turn
5: up on Point King. The likelihood. But... <laughs> It got the children away off our backs, so we were happy to yeah, let go down them and play at Cheviot
2: Beach, kids. <laughs> no, no,
5: just our local beach. Where I, I, rumor had it that he would have been swept back, uh, you know, along the bay.
1: Caro, her mother Julia and Corey from episode 19. I'm show producer Jay Neild and we hope you've enjoyed some of the best bits from Don't Shoot the Messenger and thanks as well to our wonderful sponsors, The Interchange Bench. If your business needs new players, pick them up from The Interchange Bench, the leading provider of temporary and contract talent. See interchangebench.com.au for talents so good you'd wish you could keep them. Visit The Interchange Bench. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can send Caro and Corrie an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. You can head to Don't Shoot the Messenger on Facebook and hit the little sign up button to receive a weekly update. Follow Don't Shoot Pod on Twitter or on Instagram.
2: Don't Shoot the Messenger.
1: Don't Shoot the Messenger.
6: Hello, this is Laura Tingle, and you're listening to The Book Pod with Cory Perkin. Leadership coups, which is the term for what's happened to us so much in the last 10 years, has really given leadership a bad name because uh, these haven't been about leadership. They've been about power struggles and... and yes, ego. And ego. And the essay is really, amongst other things, talking about the difference between leadership of a community as opposed to a battle for power or what power is and what authority is. I sort of had this feeling about a lot of modern fiction. I feel like I'm being played with. I feel like this has just been written to get the film rights. I really start to resent it. There's this sense that people are so self-conscious in the way they write fiction now with an eye to the film rights, and it sort of irritates me a bit. I think I've sort of, you know, fancied myself in that sort of delusional 19-year-old way. Corey as you know, a war correspondent wearing a flag jacket, you know, which was fairly hilarious because I'm a complete chicken. The party is at war with itself. It's imploding. The lack of women, I think, is as much a reflection of that as it is any particular gender prejudice because I think women always end up on the wrong end of Battles of Machismo. And do you have a favourite Sam Neill movie? Uh, Have you ever seen a Sam Neill movie? Well, I I, I rather famously uh, made a bit of a goose of myself because I admitted that I didn't remember him being in Jurassic Park I'm Laura Tingle. I hope you can join me and Cory Perkin talking about my quarterly essay in Episode 2 of The Book Pod.